So what makes you cry? What makes you cry? Good book, great film, a birthday card, a huge Vidalia onion, a hammer that misses the nail and finds your finger, a bakery that runs out of cinnamon rolls, a butcher that runs out of bacon. What makes you cry? What about what makes your cat cry? What makes your cat cry? I was doing some research for the sermon this week, came across an advice column on pets because what good theological preparation is left undone without a good advice column on pets? And the question that came into this column was this, how do I get my cat to stop crying all the time? She seems to have everything she needs. What more can I do? The cat owner goes on to explain a little more. She is just crying all the time. She gets a clean bill of health from the vet, and there's another cat in the house that she's lived with for 10 years, so she shouldn't feel lonely. She has food, she has water, and she gets plenty of lap time and brushing. Now, I grew up with cats. That's what we had. We, we had cats. Zach was our gray and white cat when I was younger. Oxford was our black cat when I was older, and and. Because I grew up with cats, I feel like I have just a, a little bit of, of experience at least to, to give to the question this owner has, what more can I do? And the answer to that is nothing. Like nothing, nothing. You're never going to make your cat happy, all right? It's never going to happen. You know, I had great cats, and I was kind to them. They were kind to me. We got along. We played. We had fun. But I never could do anything to actually make them happy. Someone once said this, in ancient times, cats were worshipped as gods. They have not forgotten this. The person writing the advice column gave a better answer than me. I say nothing, but, but they had some, some advice And some of this advice came from a certified cat behaviorist. No idea that such a position existed, but it does. And and so after a few paragraphs of advice, professional advice, the columnist finally closes with this. I know this is a lot to consider. You just wanted the cat to shut up. And now you're on the hook for blood work, hearing exams, and self-reflection to figure out whether you are to blame for her whining and screeching. This is often how it goes, right? And then they said this, but take solace in knowing that it could be worse. Both of your cats could be crying constantly, and wouldn't that be complicated? Now, I know some of you are saying, you know what? I don't have cats, and I don't cry, so this has absolutely nothing to do with me. But let's switch gears a little bit. What if crying, in a sense, actually impacted what happened to you after you die? What if, what if weeping had a huge impact on what happens to you after you breathe your last? That makes the concept of crying a, a little more complicated if those things are true. So what does all this mean? Well, let's find out. Apostle Paul's writing to some folks in a place called Philippi, and he says this to them beginning in Philippians 3 verse 18. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is weeping. 
These aren't just fancy words that he's trying to use as a figure of speech to try to pull people in. He is writing this letter and tears are hitting the page. Now, some people will say that, you know, real men don't cry. But the problem is that Paul is one of the manliest men who's ever lived on the earth. He was very well respected. He was very well educated. He could build huge caravan tents from scratch with his bare hands. He could be beaten to a pulp by soldiers and keep going. Charles Spurgeon said this about him. I never read that the apostle wept when he was persecuted. Though they plowed his back with furrows, I do not believe that never a tear was seen to gush from his eye while the soldiers scourged him. Though he was cast into prison, we read of his singing, never of his groaning. I do not believe he ever wept on account of any sufferings or dangers to which he himself was exposed for Christ's sake. I call this an extraordinary sorrow because the man who wept was no soft piece of sentiment and seldom shed a tear even under grievous trials. Paul was not soft and Paul wept. Why? Why did Paul cry? Why why did he weep? Well, he was crying because there were some really, really bad examples. There were some people who were setting some terrible examples. He even referred to them as enemies of the cross. What is an enemy of the cross? That's what Paul said to the folks at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. An enemy of the cross is someone who lives and thinks and talks and acts like the work of Jesus on the cross is absurd, that it's foolishness, that it's unnecessary for life today. Someone who's an enemy of the cross, they they live and they think and they talk and act as someone who thinks that, that good deeds and good works are the most important thing in the universe. A person who's an enemy of the cross is someone who lives and thinks and acts in such a way that that they think pride and and self-image and self-preservation are the most important character traits that you can have. Here's the kicker of this scene, though. Paul's not talking about angry atheists. He's talking about people who might even call themselves good Baptists. He's talking about people that that are in and around the church. So where might you find some enemies of the cross? Well, you might find them in Christian books. You might find them in Christian conferences. You, you might find them in Christian radio. You might find them in the church pulpit. You might find them in the church pews. Well, great. Thanks, preacher. Appreciate you making me paranoid to ever go to church on Sunday ever again. Thanks for making me paranoid about ever sitting down next to someone at camp or at a conference or at a, you know, a care group in the coffee shop. Thanks for, for making sure that every time somebody recommends a book, I'm supposed to be afraid and I'm supposed to be afraid of every song now that I hear on Christian radio. Well, that's, that's not what Paul's doing. It's not what I'm doing either. It's, it's not being paranoid. That's, that's not what Paul's moving us to. He's, he's trying to help us be wise. He's trying to to help us be wise in in who we watch and who we listen to, who we follow. If a pastor or a preacher or an elder or a deacon or a conference speaker or a 
an author or a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or a singer is diminishing the cross, steer clear. Steer clear. If they are unnecessarily promoting their agendas, their ideas, their view of things, steer clear. If they are actually hindering the work of the gospel, then steer clear. Because see, here's the thing. In being an enemy of the cross, they are hindering the work of the gospel, even though they might be using things about God and talking about his love and his plan and his ways for your life. So how would you know? How would you know somebody's an enemy of the cross? Well, here's the thing. Listen for the cross. Watch for the cross. Look for the cross. That doesn't mean that that every sermon and every song and every prayer and and every Sunday school class, the word cross has to be used. Don't, Don't be a legalist. And on the flip side, just because the word cross is being used, don't say, oh, everything's good. No, it's it's the message of the cross that matters. The message of the cross is not just a couple of verses in the New Testament, but it is Genesis to Revelation. The message of the cross is the, the message of God's sovereign grace and sovereign kindness and sovereign love that comes to the world through Jesus, through the cross. That message must be in the overall ministry of the church, the overall ministry of the pastor, the overall ministry of the preacher or the author or the singer or the professing Christian. The cross must be there. The message of the cross must be there. This is what Paul wrote to the folks at Galatia. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, one of the reasons that we should not boast about numbers and we should not boast about denomination, we should not boast about church buildings, we should not boast about worship styles, we should not boast about pastors or worship leaders or or anything along those lines is because none of those things are what we should be boasting about. In fact, it's dangerous to boast in those things. The only thing that we should be boasting about is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our boast. We don't have another boast. Now, for us in 2019, we we don't have a problem kind of saying, oh, yeah, okay, we'll we'll boast in the cross. But, But Paul's not writing in 2019. Paul's writing in a time that there was nothing attractive about the cross. You didn't win friends and influence people by talking about the cross. The cross was a hated and despised thing in the ancient world. It was an image of humiliation. In Roman culture, you wouldn't even use the word cross in polite conversation because it was such a despicable notion. And yet the founder of our faith was executed on a cross. Our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer, he was executed in a way that in ancient times was reserved for terrorists. Reserved for serial killers. Reserved for the worst of the worst. So how can we make a modern day connection with the idea of the cross? Since we have crosses all over the church and on jewelry and and out in our yards and other places. How how can we make a bit of a connection with this? Kim Riddlebarger puts it this way. I've heard Billy Graham say it in almost the same way. 
The first century equivalent of the electric chair, the gas chamber, the hangman's noose, or the firing squad. That's, that's the cross. You know, whatever, whatever show you've seen on the History Channel that, that talks about the, the worst things that happened in the worst countries all over the world, from dictators or from war, you, you put that into the image and you have a bit of an image of the cross. So in, in light of that thought, let me just ask us. Would, would you have been one of the first Christians? I, I mean, before there were pews and stained glass and buildings and, and preachers that kept their sermon to under 35 minutes, but before there were praise bands or, or youth ministries or children's ministries, if none of those things were there, would you follow Jesus? Do we follow Jesus, but we come to the church and we go, well, these people have what I want. I think I will let them let me be a member because I like what they have here. We have become such a consumer culture in the life of the church that we have almost forgotten the cross. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we were to take ourselves back to the moment that Paul is weeping, we probably would have nothing to do with Jesus and nothing to do with his cross because it would interrupt our vacation and it would interrupt our summer and it would interrupt our comfort and it would not make our kids happy and it would not make us happy because it's not comfortable but it may not be comfortable but the cross of Jesus saves it saves it redeems it rescues and do we want what's most for our life and most for our kids and most for our grandkids to be comfortable or do we want them to be rescued from sin. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was a scoundrel. The cross was scandalous, absolutely scandalous. And in the middle of all that, Paul goes, boasting that. <laughs> boasting the cross. Make a, make a really big deal about the cross. Brag about the cross. Point everyone's attention to the cross. You see, the cross says to us that God loves us and sent his son to die for us. And the cross means that his son died for us and made a way for us to be rescued and redeemed and satisfied. And the cross means that, that we have a way of being free and forgiven. The cross means that there is coming a day for those who are in Christ that they will hear the Savior say to the one holy almighty God, they're innocent. My, my blood washed their sins. Christian, we boast in the cross because we have absolutely nothing else to boast in. Nothing. We have nothing to post in but the cross. And that's why if someone is not boasting in the cross, we, we steer clear. We, we steer clear because that, that is our message. That, that is our boast. It's, it's what we communicate. But in steering clear, we don't completely bail out. I remember Paul's he's weeping here. He's crying over this. I, I think maybe for a couple of reasons. One, I think he's weeping because he realized these enemies, they are 
influencing the church. They're impacting the church. They're, they're, they're influencing other believers. They're drawing them away from Christ. And I think he's weeping because they had such an influence in the church. Last week we talked about what it meant to be a Christ-like example, but there's also the reality of being a non-Christ-like example. The reality of, of being an example of someone that doesn't really build up the church, that doesn't really help the church, that's not really cheering the church on. Paul says the reality is that he's weeping over that, but, but I think he's also weeping because there are people who are professing Christians that are actually enemies of the cross. I think he's broken over that reality that, that there's people who are professing to be followers of Jesus, and yet, yet the reality is they're an enemy of the cross. And I think his tears kind of help us to, to hopefully move in, in one way, at least a challenge for us, and that is that, that we need to have a good balance of discernment and a good balance of compassion when it comes to folks who are enemies of the cross, when it comes to folks who are not a good influence for the gospel, not a good influence for the church. We can't make them leaders. We, we can't make them teachers. We can't put them on committees. But we can pray for them. And we can pray that, that their hearts would be captured with the beauty and the power and the authority of the cross. We can pray. And maybe just to make sure that we don't not look in the mirror, how, how can we make sure that, that we're not being an enemy of the cross? How can we be sure that, that maybe we're the ones being a bad influence or we're the ones distracting? How can we kind of look at our lives and see that we're not that person? Well, Paul helps us. He, he gives us a pretty helpful description. Listen to verse 19. He said, these enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Paul says that true enemies of the Christ are, are heading toward destruction. Now, is that like destruction on life, that something bad's going to happen to them on the earth? Maybe. But, but the overall language of the text seems to move more toward the reality that this is a person that is going to have a destiny of terror in hell forever. A destiny of being separated from God forever. And, and why? Why is their destination destruction? Well, Paul says it's because they're worldly. Well, what does it mean to be worldly? Well, somebody's defined it this way. It, it means that we take the godless standards of the world and we say, yep, this is how I'm going to do life. This is what's going to be first and most important to me. And Paul breaks it down even more. He kind of gives some description of this worldliness. The first thing he says there is that he says worldliness is because their God is their appetite. Their God is their belly. This is hard for a guy who always talks about bacon and donuts in a sermon, right? I mean, it's a little, little nerve-wracking. A pastor once asked the congregation, he said, hey, he said, could you list out the 12 disciples for me? And he paused for a second. He goes, okay. He goes, now can you list out the 12 most popular TV chefs? And he said, which one did you get right? See, if we can only do the second list, and we can do the second list pretty quick, but, but we can't do the first list, it may be that we are deep, 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 in worldliness. An ancient Greek play, one of the characters said this, 
my flocks which I sacrifice to no one but myself and not to the gods, and to this my belly, the greatest of the gods. For to eat and drink each day and to give oneself no trouble, this is the God of wise men. Avoid all trouble. Do whatever your heart desires. Look out for number one. Make yourself happy. I mean, does that not kind of sound like in the Western world what we tell people to go do? Do do we not have a culture where we say, you know what, the most important thing for you is to make sure that you worship the God of your belly. And you, you just do what you love. You do what makes you happy. You do whatever your heart desires. You look out for number one. Those are signs of someone who is dangerously stepping off the edge into worldliness. So, Paul says, maybe we should watch our belly. We should watch our appetites. Then he says this. He secondly notes that their glory is in their shame. They are proud of things that should embarrass them. Not this past week, but, but last week. Is that right? How how is it last? Not this past week, but the or what I say the week before. I got this wrong with Karen and Corey Moore one time, so I've tried to get them to correct me. It wasn't this week, okay? It was last week. Whatever the math is on that, I was sick for three days. I had a virus. I was in the bed for three days, and and during those three days, I looked at social media probably more than I've ever looked at social media in my life. And by that, what I mean is, over the course of three days, I spent about six minutes on social media. Right? You know, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a I'm not a true social media But I tell you the thing that, that overwhelmed me in, in just the, the little bit of, of scrolling that I did is, is how much we as a people are not embarrassed about things we should be embarrassed about. I mean, it's amazing. Things that we would never say or do at work or at school or at church or at the doctor's office or at our mama's house. We'll post, and we'll ask people to like it. This, this is our culture. Look, don't get me wrong. I know I talked about social media last week, and the only reason I'm not on it is my brain's already fried. I just can't think. And, and so it's great. I love the opportunities we have to communicate ministry, to remind each other of things that are going on, of, of communicating the gospel. Social media is being used in amazing ways to make sure that the gospel gets to the farthest reaches of the earth. It is fantastic in so many ways, and it is crazy dangerous in a lot of ways as well. And, and one of those ways is that that our culture, and I hate to say it, but we as Christians, we seem to often be leading the way. We, we are using social media to glory in, in jokes and quotes and videos and rants that we shouldn't glory in. We, we should be ashamed of, but we're not. We're posting them. We're sending them. We're sharing them. We should be embarrassed, but we glory in our shame. We're no different. There's nothing new under the sun. Paul and them didn't have social media, but they still were glorying in their shame. Third description Paul gives here is that their minds are set on worldly things. This is a little deeper. Their minds are just there. 
They're, they're so set on the idea of worldliness. This is probably the, the strongest language he uses because it's, it's unhindered. There's an old phrase that Lig Duncan talked about one time. It goes like this. I don't drink, dance, smoke, or chew, and I don't go with guys or girls that do. That's not what Paul's talking about. All right. <laughs> He's, he's, he's pushing us a little deeper than just a, a list of do's and don'ts. He, he's wanting us to see that, that worldliness is one of those things that, that comes in and it just kind of takes over. So I, I'm just going to ask just a handful of questions. And, and I want you to, to the best of your ability, use your heart to answer these questions. And, and let your heart respond, um, not just your mind. So what really matters to you? What do you love first and most? What do you really want in life? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What are you teaching your family? What are your biggest dreams and your deepest desires? See, our answers to those questions will give us a gauge of of how worldly we, got, we really are. And let me just confess for all of us, we're probably all a lot more worldly than we think. And, and the danger of that is that that worldliness pulls us away from what matters the most. It pulls us away from what will actually satisfy us the most. So how can you steer your soul clear of worldliness? How can you steer your soul clear of enemies of the cross or anything in the atmosphere of being an enemy of the cross? Well, I want to help you steer clear through a motivation and a recommendation. Here's the motivation. Stephen Cole writes, I can think of nothing more tragic than to profess to be a Christian, to be involved in serving Christ, and to stand before him one day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles only to hear the horrifying words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's the motivation. It's straight from the mouth of Jesus. Now here's the recommendation. Charles Spurgeon was known to have a bit of a motto, and it went like this. I hold and am held. That's a great motivation. Dear Christian, let us today and tomorrow and next week and next month, let us keep taking hold of Jesus over and over and over again. We will want to take hold of the world. And look, the world is there. We have to use the world. But let us not take hold of the world and worship the world. Let us take hold of Jesus because Jesus has taken hold of us.